Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Andy Reese. Andy is a mental skills coach for the Cincinnati Reds. Originally from Oakdale, California, Andy is an Eagle Scout, a West Point graduate and former Army football player. Over his decorated 20-year military career as a field artillery officer, Andy led soldiers in a variety of overseas missions highlighted by multiple combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan and serving five years in two elite special forces units. Andy is a member of the American Psychological Association and the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. His research and coaching expertise is in the evidence-based best practices of sport and performance psychology and various applied behavioral science disciplines with an emphasis on mental toughness and stress inoculation. His teaching experience includes West Point's Center for Enhanced Performance, the U.S. Air Force Academy's Department of Behavior Science and Leadership, the U.S. Army Maneuver Center of Excellence, and Texas A&M University. He is one of the Army's first master resilience trainers and facilitators and helped launch the Comprehensive Fitness Program. As a consultant, Andy's client list includes professional sports teams, corporate leaders, first responders, and practitioners in health. He has published several peer-reviewed articles, research papers, and the best-selling book, Deliberate Discomfort, How U.S. Special Operations Forces Overcome Fear and Dare to Win by Getting Comfortable Being Uncomfortable. This is an episode that you are going to want to take your time with. It was a ton of fun for me to nerd out with Andy on performance. Andy shared just a wealth of tools and resources and frameworks and books that people can use to build mental toughness, to build performance, build confidence, uh, and really just get better outcomes in all areas of life. And as he talks about in here uh, briefly at one point, you know, this stuff can be applied whether you want to be a better athlete, whether you want to be a better salesperson, business executive, father, you know, it really doesn't matter. It's just all about being purposeful in every aspect of your life and treating every aspect of your life as a performance. Thought it was great. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Andy Reese. And we are live with Andy Reese. Andy, welcome to the show. Thrilled to have you and dive into performance here today. Well, Brian, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. And thanks for tuning in. First question, how does one become a mental skills coach? Wow. How does one get to Carnegie Hall? As I <laughs> say, too, hard damn work, right? No, um, it's there's a couple of different pathways to, to get there. I mean, the, the more traditional one is obviously getting your master's degree, going, getting 
you necessarily have to have a psychology undergrad, uh, but you do have to pursue a, a master's degree and or higher, usually in sport and performance psychology. Sports psychology is, you know, relatively new field in terms of like higher education and getting degrees and then even a modern certification at, as the field's been around about a about hundred years. It's usually housed in like health and kinesiology, sister departments like sports management and whatnot as well too. But really the master's to PhD program is the best way to be able to go do that. And it's interesting for the people who are out there, it's, it's kind of confusing too. To, to become a sports psychologist, you actually have to have a clinical license by your state, right? But they actually deal more with the pathology end of the spectrum of psychology. And we think about the spectrum of psychology, think about, you know, to look at the physical side, you've got pathology identifying sickness and illness and injury and treating that on the medical model. Then we think about, you know, in the middle to compare like an AT or a PT, an athletic trainer, a physical trainer, a counselor, maybe licensed or, or not, that is preventing the injury and illness psychologically as well. And then, then there's the performance side, which is more of what I'm in and what traditionally what mental skills coaches do. And the best way to become a mental skills coach is uh, through the Association of Applied Sports Psychology. And then uh, you can go to the ASP website and check that out uh, to become a certified mental performance coach. And, and it's a great organization. It has a third-party credential now. Uh, and ironically, baseball is leading the way towards uh, making that certification a mandatory requirement to become a certified mental performance coach. Because, you know, previously anybody with a psychology degree could say, oh, I'm a sports psychologist. And so now the field is really becoming streamlined. And, and I think that's an exciting part of the field towards when we're talking about the mental game in, in plain sight, just like we're talking about, you know, nutrition and sports science and, and other things, right? It's not something that's in the shadows. It's, it's out in the open and more mainstream now than ever. How much of being a top performer is like an innate, like, oh, they've just got it? versus actually a learned skill? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite questions because I, I also look at that not only from a mental performance side, but also from a leadership side as well, too. It's the old question, are, are leaders and high performers born or are they made? And the answer is when you actually dig into the science is a little bit of both. I, I think probably it's about, if I was to take what the science says, what we know, and there's still a lot of gaps in what we know, probably about 80% is learned behaviors, right? So 20% is innate, okay, especially on the physical side of things too, which you could actually argue that a lot of this is, even the mental side is physical because of the neurochemical side of things that was going on in terms of how we think and we know about cognition, right? But I think if, like Michael Jordan, you know, he could jump out of a gym, right? But, you know, he, he didn't make his bat, high school basketball team, right, too. So what did he learn through his upbringing and his experiences that allowed him, you know, I mean, his, his drive, as we found out in The Last Dance, and we start to get a, a look at the man, Michael Jordan, what made the myth, right? And the legend that he is today, too. And it's interesting, he, if we take him as a case study or any other higher elite performer, the majority of what they, what makes them great is through learned behaviors. And I think that I'm just, what I deal with is the mental, emotional, and even interpersonal side, I would say, in terms of that whole equation, in terms of what makes a great performer individually. And organizationally great at what they do. So I like where you went with that because you talk about Michael Jordan and you talk about like, well, he had to learn all these skills to become the basketball player he had. But then in the show, we saw the drive that he had. So is drive the other 20% that is innate or can you actually teach and spark drive in somebody too? Yeah, you can teach and spark drive. And 
there's a lot of in popular psychology now you look at like the work of daniel pink he does a really good job talking about that and also if you really want to nerd out and look at you know ryan and dc have also talked about self-determination theory and about hey what is motivation and how does it work right and and so i think that motivate we used to think you know and i, I learned this even at west point psychology 101 that motivation was like kind of like two flavors it was either intrinsic which means that it was internally driven or extrinsic because of external sources but the reality is we're all a mix of both right but i think the, the key thing is is that we want to have be able to have what's ca called the car this is self-determination theory we want to have connectedness to our social network right whether it's our family our friends our teammates we want to have relative autonomy we want to have agency to be able to determine our own path and our outcomes in terms of whether it's business or in life and, and the other thing was is just relatedness right as well too and so i think we have that car acronym that connectedness that uh, autonomy and that uh, relatedness you know we can all find ways to, to find motivation and you know it's not some unicorn or rainbow thing it's there's a deliberate process into how motivation works how we can tap into that both individually but also collectively as a team to get where we want to go with common goals so let's say, like, what does that practically look like? So let's say you're working with a player who maybe, like, you can just tell they're loafing it a little bit. They're just not showing up with the energy every day. Or, or maybe, you know, in your previous world, there's a, you know, fellow soldier who's just sort of mailing it in on the day-to-day -day stuff. Like, what, how do you engage that person and start to build some of this drive back into them or help them build it into themselves? Yeah, for sure. I, I think... A great case study would be probably during COVID. A lot of our baseball players, especially our minor league players, who found themselves all of a sudden without a season, right? You know, we look, you know, over a year ago when kind of the world came to a halt, right? And then all of a sudden, within about 30 days, we found out the major league season, we were trying to figure out when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, but the minor league season was canceled. So the majority of our organization developmentally across the board, their season ended depending where they were either, you know, in urban centers or rural areas or they're, they're overseas with our Latin American players, they're all of a sudden in, in uncharted territory, right? And now they got to figure it out. And baseball as a whole was trying to, had never been really connected with Zoom just like a lot of us had. Some of us were, some in, industries and organizations were, were primed to do this because of the remote option and, and doing what we're doing now via Zoom. Baseball was not. And so, how do we do player development remotely when players are essentially isolated? They don't have their coaches and teammates immediately available to them. They may or may not have a resource like a training facility, a gym, other players who are athletes like themselves who are trying to continue to develop for about 18 months, right? So motivation then became really key. The, the idea is it's like understanding what is my goal? So my goal is to continue to get better right then what are some small things that i can do to to be able to move that needle behaviorally to get better knowing that hey look am i going to continue to develop the same way that i did when i'm not playing live baseball absolutely not but if i can do small things like even i'm in new york city i got an apartment what can i do to continue to work out what can i do to continue to be able to stay connected and watch film and do those things too what can i do to continue to work on my mental game how can i go out and throw with family members out on an alley a street People just really got creative and innovative on how they continue to move towards their goals. And, and I think what you see there is when they took those incremental and deliberate steps to, to get better no matter what. And a lot of people talk about this whole 1% better thing. And that is very true in this case. But whenever you you're, you're get big by going small, you're going to continue to be able to get better no matter what, even though that's not a linear process, right? 
And I think what you see now is that the players are really invested in that. Now it's, it starts to translate to the field. There's some things that were not uh, translating to the field, but there are also, it's interesting is that they got better because they went through a difficult time and they now found out ways they can develop that they never even thought about because now they were forced to get created because of the restricted situation due to COVID. So I guess, would it be fair to say, like, if you were giving advice to a leader whose team is maybe facing something like that, it's, would the advice be help them think creative and figure out what those small steps are that they can do with that? Is that kind of the first step in keeping people engaged? Yeah. And, and I'll even give you a framework for it too. You know, I'm a huge fan of human centered design is a design thinking. And I think that the first thing is to, to really to, to come in with empathy, right. And to think like, who is the end user and what is our outcome that we're trying to do? A lot of technology companies use this in terms of a product. So when we think of, things like, you know, the iPhone and software as a service, right? It, it's all about the end user and what we're trying to do as a team. But ultimately, the, you know, the performer, the employee, for example, the customer experience, what they're going to be able to do. When you put that perspective in mind, that, that gives you a framework for that. Now I can start to be able to then rapidly prototype some things and get immediate feedback and make mistakes early and often. Because there's a lot of influencers who are out there right now too that's it it's it, you know one of these are kind of annoys me right now as you go on social media and they're talking about fail often and fail early and failure 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 it not everything is failure right yeah. it's a the, right? the goal is not failure the goal is success yeah that's right the goal is success right but that's the outcome but there's a process that goes into that right and so how do i iterate rapidly prototype and experiment and make mistakes that are you know little micro failures you know if you will too because like in my world, in the, in the military, you know, there was a, especially in special operations, it was like, hey, failure was not an option. So for me, failure meant that people were going to die, right? And that was the ultimate failure, right? Knowing that that was ultimately something that we had to deal with, right? And, and I'm fortunate as a leader to, to never had a soldier under my command die, I know. But I, I lost a lot of teammates, right? And I, I lost a lot of people that I worked with in foreign armies and interpreters and so on and so forth, too. And so for me, you know, when I say, when we code everything as failure, that is really not even setting ourselves up for success because we want to be able to iterate deliberately, intentionally, prototype, experiment, practice, make you know, and then learn from that, right? Because failure in itself isn't the precipice for, for learning, right? Because there are a lot of people who make a lot of mistakes, and including this guy, to where you know, I didn't learn from those mistakes because either the consequence didn't force me to learn or just because I didn't sit with the dissonance, the cognitive dissonance that, hey, I, I need to make a course correction, or I just had a blind spot. I didn't get feedback from a coach or a trusted mentor to say that, hey, do you just realize that you, you could have done that a lot better or that you screwed that up and here's why? And so I think that going back to what I talked about too, if we can really learn a lot from design thinking, and I, I like the Stanford model of design thinking to really iterate through and find creative and innovative solutions to our problems and how we want to get better. And you mentioned in there, uh, I want to pull something out. You said, get big by going small. Can yeah. You, can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I, I think we oftentimes, we want to, especially nowadays, we want to, it's the drive-by mindset. We want instant gratification. It's the, and that goes with everything, right? In terms of the progress that we're making. And, and I see that in the mental skills world as well, is that, hey, that we think that all of a sudden I'm going to show up and then just because I'm present, or I'm available, that I'm a part of this organization, like in the Cincinnati Reds, that we're going to be mentally tougher just because I, I'm here. And the reality is, is that 
it doesn't work like that. It takes a long time, right? And so, and it's not these big, huge things that were like big education sessions, big training sessions, and blocks of time where we got to create space. It's like water over a rock, right? And it's it's all about relationships. It's all about trust for me because in my field that the mental game is so personal and, you know, and it's so relationship-based that, hey, I can't make any progress if people, I don't have rapport with somebody and if they don't trust me, right? So for me, you know, you can get big by getting small in terms of the relationships. And when people trust me and when a player knows who I am and I know about him and his family, I understand what motivates, I understand what he thinks, I understand what made him who he is. I understand what his strengths are. I understand what his, the barriers are that get in the way. Now we can actually have a context to have a conversation and move the needle because he's willing to open up to me to see the six inches between his ears and then figure out a way to then, you know, help him be at his best more often. And that's not just when he's struggling, when he has a bad outing, you know, he gets, he gets shelled for six runs and gets pulled in the second, right. You know, and then he doesn't have an opportunity to be able to succeed until five days later. So what are we doing in between that time to either make adjustments or really, but, you know, really double down on that process to make sure he's successful the next time that takes a long time. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of persistence, but more importantly, it takes, you know, a lot of little things that can make a big difference in somebody's life. You just keep giving me like you answer the question, then right at the end, you just give me the nugget for the next one. So you're, you're a great uh, interview. So let's talk about that pitcher, right? So, you know, every outing for a starting pitcher is a big deal because they only have so many of them throughout the year. And I think that translates to a lot of other parts of business and life. Like you only get so many opportunities to do the thing and, and to win or lose. And so let's say they take a shelling, right? Like it's bad. They crash and burn. How do you, as a mental skills coach and, and, you know, as a coaching staff, address that player and get them prepped to go again five days later for the big thing, right? How do you get them prepped for that next performance? Yeah, it's, it's really timely because I was just talking about this with our different pitchers and staff. Because we have, you, when you look at pitchers, and I think this translates to business and other fields as well, too, in terms of like, how do we plan and prepare and anticipate? Versus how do we have to re- react or rather respond? So we think about readiness, like readiness, like is to define that as our ability and willingness to be prepared to perform at an optimal level, right? And I say that optimal because it's not about peaks, peak performance and, you know, where I'm crushing it all the time and things are going really well. It's getting the most out of what you got. And so if I don't have my A game as a pitcher, as a starter or reliever, let's say, hey, just because of the conditions, like last night is this is super humid. They, they may be gassed for whatever reason. They may be nursing a slight injury or ailment or whatever, too. So, hey, look, I may have my C game, right? I don't have my A game just for whatever reason, right? Maybe things are beyond my control. But how can I get the most out of that C game to get a C plus, right? And I think that is where uh, we really make our money, right? Because if we're waiting for us to have our A game and be in the zone all the time, then th- those are fleeting, fleeting moments, right? We, we don't live our lives on the peaks. We live them in the valleys. And we're always trying to strive to get up the mountain, knowing it's a very, those zone moments, those flow states are very fleeting, right? So going back to the picture example, to put this in context, right? So those opportunities to actually to actually execute are in five-day increments if you're a pitcher, right? And some guys maybe start off as, as starters and they become relievers because they just do better in a relief status. And the way that I describe pitchers in this case, and I think this translates to other fields again, is like a starting pitcher is is like a uh, wildlife firefighter, and I'm from California, right? And 
have a shout out to my godfather who's a career hotshot firefighter my nephew who works for cal fire they're seasonal firefighters right so every summer they know that hey once the spring happens california is going to become a tinderbox right and so that's when cal fire starts to hire so you may be but in between that time you may be a city firefighter right so as a city firefighter you got to be ready all the time that's what a reliever is so starters are like wildlife or forest firefighters the state and federal level and then the city firefighters are relievers right there's a different mindset as far as what you have to do in terms of those loops to be able to get ready and the way that you do that is developing a really locked in routine so a routine is a series of steps usually three to five steps in terms of a pre-performance routine but we're going to say a series of attitudes and behaviorals that funnel your attention and energy to to really be at your best when it matters the most to where you don't have to think you can become unconsciously competent, let your skill out. Not thinking a lot. I'm just really letting that skill out. And then I have that with no mindedness that increases the likelihood that I'm going to be at my best and perform optimally. Right. But a lot of players, what I see, especially at the lower levels, I see this with junior leaders in businesses that they don't have a routine built in, or they may have like a glorified to-do list or just things that they do over the course of their day, you know, like, Hey, I, you know, wake up in the morning, I got my morning routine and got to be work at nine. And, but they're not doing things. They may have a behavioral component of there too, but in terms of their attitudes, in terms of how they think, how that works with what they do to funnel things towards a specific performance event, whether it's a meeting, it's a business call, it's a pitching outing, it's reading with my kids at night, it's writing a proposal, whatever it is. If we start to treat the, everything that we do whether it's a very important thing or it's a mundane thing, like a performance, and we develop a routine, you know, around those things, write it down. That helps it, you know, ingrain that into memory, but you have to practice it, refine it again, using that design methodology to make it work for you. So that process is something you fall back on. It's not something you have to think about. You just do it automatically. And the routines really help you get there. You know, it's funny. You talked about like in sports about, not being able to give your A game all the time, not, you know, that inspired performance. And it made me think of Stephen Pressfield, the author who writes a lot about war, but he also writes a lot about art. And in one of my favorite books of all time is The War of Art that he wrote. And he talks about how, I can't remember which author he quoted in saying it, but it was, he was asked, you know, do you wait for the muse or, you know, do you sit down with discipline, you know, are you a discipline guy? And he said, Oh, I'm, I'm a muse writer. He said, it's just lucky for me. The muse shows up every morning at 9am. And you know, it's like that you can do some inspired work if you wait for the muse, but overall, you're just not going to get the volume of work done that you need to get done if you're sitting around waiting for that inspired performance. And so it really is in any endeavor, whether it's writing or I've heard Jerry Seinfeld say the same thing about comedy. I've heard athletes and you know folks like you talk about it in sports. It's like you got to just put in the work consistently and then inspired performances arise out of that work. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, Hemingway uh, has a great point about Pressfield and about how the art and science and how do you deliberately create the opportunity to be able to let the art out, right? You know, or to be, be creative. And blending that too. I think Ernest Hemingway has a, is a great case study with that as well. Like Pressfield, PBS had an awesome mini series. I don't know if you, I don't know if you saw it. Brian, I'm one episode in. Oh man, yeah. it's fantastic, right? I mean, just an amazing man and story, and uh, one of the best authors of our time, who's incredibly complicated and flawed. And I just love the story. But I think one of the things that jumped at me from a performance standpoint was, you know, we, everybody talks about how disciplined he was. 
but that wasn't by accident. When he actually created space, so first of all, he set the conditions, right? He had an environment that was completely dedicated to where he could focus in on his craft, free of distractions, allowed him to be able to focus. He carved out time to be able to do that. But then he created space to then to be able to go let let the skill out in other ways to synthesize that using a lot of the science is called the edge effect, right? Into where I, you know, maybe I start on uh, writing a piece like a, a book and then I put it down. Then I go do something else. Like for him, that was like fishing or whatever crazy adventures that he had too. And by him doing something else and then and then going back to that, it really fed into that edge effect in terms of creating things that were masterful, right? Let's not discount the fact that he had amazing women in his life. You know, unfortunately, Hemingway had a lot of them who were there to be his standing board, right? Because Hemingway didn't do it by himself. That that was sometimes we we give a lot of credit to the performer, but no one gets there alone. Hemingway was getting a lot of feedback from a lot of trusted circle who were also brilliant at what they did to then help him in his process. Uh, yeah, I love that. I heard somebody else talking about Hemingway's process the other day on the radio, talking about how he would write until he had solved whatever the problem of the day was. And then he would stop. Like right when he hit flow, he would stop. And then he would come back the next day, pick up that flow, write till he found a problem, solve that problem, and then stop again. And so he kind of always left it, always left himself wanting a little bit more. And that was how he got back the next day. He didn't burn himself out every day. He purposely he purposely left at that moment where he wanted to dive in and keep going. And then that was what inspired him the next day. That's a great point to that. You know, maybe we can assume that Hemingway knew his cognitive, his threat, the threshold of his cognitive load, right? I mean, it, our brain consumes about 30% of our energy every day just by existing, right? And so when I'm actively engaged in something that is cognitively and even emotionally, like has a lot of stress put on it in a good way, how do I understand how I might become self-aware of when that threshold is that I need to back off, right? Because a lot of people just grind it out. And again, the, the famous York Stotts and the, the arousal level, the inverted you, if you will, too. There is that, you know, that you is not universally constructive. We all have a different threshold and that looks different physically, mentally, technically, tactically, right? So if we all have our own version of you, what does that look like in certain situations to where we've hit our limit and then we need, we need to go into recovery mode? And then what, how am I deliberately recovering in terms of how I eat, how I sleep, how I rest, how I meditate, how I do other things that sets me in its, and puts me in the best position to then when I want to ramp it back up, I can more likely get to an optimal level in that curve again. But again, those sine waves, you know, are something that we have to be really aware of. We can use to our advantage. We just have to be very deliberate and intentional about how we go about that. Is that a hard thing to coach in other people? Because it just seems like we all ignore that. And we just we, we do. blast through it. We, we do. I mean, and it, it's, it, it is because it's, it's a part of our Western culture and our mindset as Americans, right? It's in our DNA as, as Americans. And it's part of the immigrant mindset that, hey, we came here for a bet, better life and another opportunity. And we were, we were led to believe, and, and this is true, that, hey, if we work hard, uh, we bust our humps, that good things are going to happen, right? It's just the American way of doing things. And look at, World War II, how we mobilized and, and just the amazing feat that we did because we busted our asses, man. We worked really, really hard. So that's that's the training mindset, right? And that's what allows us to be able to get good at things and to bring skill in because I'm critical, I'm analytical, I'm judgmental. It, it requires effort and thinking more and doing more, right? 
But the other part of that, the the opposite side of that mindset, a mindset being a pattern of thinking is a trusting mindset, right? And you know, and I really learned this at West Point because we're it's a it's a really amazing Spartan community of high performers who are just grinders. Baseball, we hear about the grind all the time. We just want to work our ass off, and it's the solution for everything. But the tr- the trusting mindset is how do we is really when we're at our best. That that is really more synonymous with the zone and flow states and letting the skill out when we're you know, we're really more, we're finding synthesis. It's more of the art. It's more of the letting go. It's more of the having fun, you know, and slowing things down and being patient and being self-compassionate, right? If I could find a way to be able to, to blend training and trusting, you know, Tim Galloway does a great job of talking about this in, in, a, in an awesome book called The Inner Game of Tennis. It's a seminal work in sports psychology. We also talked about in Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He alludes to this a little bit too. It, it's not hard. For people to get, it's just like our default mechanism and our our habits are ingrained into the training aspect of what we do and how we go about our craft. And we want to harness that, right? When someone is able to then take that and apply that to their mental game and they understand that this is going to give me an edge, then I can use that to the advantage. The hard part is, is then, you know, how do I train myself to trust myself? And then how do I trust myself to train myself? And then finding that balance. So it's not hard to then to coach someone on it it's an art as much as it is a science in terms of how to put that into practice. And then again, it's experimental and we got to figure it out. Uh, but the earlier that we can do that, the more likely, you know, we're going to find the the returns on that work. So I want to like sort of pause and like go sideways on a tangent here for a second, because you've talked about, I'm taking some notes, self-determination theory, human-centered design. You've talked, I didn't catch the name of it, but you talked about the U-curve. You've talked about a number of different books. I mean, a ton of different frameworks here. And I, I find frameworks to be really interesting. And I think my, my own sort of personal theory on this is that frameworks are incredibly helpful when it comes to performance, but you got to pick some and stick with them because you can, you can over framework yourself to death. It's incredibly confusing to figure out which frameworks are going to be the ones that work for you. You've already rattled off a bunch of them. And it was funny, even in our, you called me right before this and you were like, Hey, putting together my pace plan, which I had never heard of, but I love that. I wrote it down, you know, uh, trying to make sure that your internet connection was right. So how have you come up with the frameworks that work for you and how have you made them habit? Like how have you made them usable? Because I think we hear a framework and we go, Oh yeah, that totally makes sense. I love that framework. And then it we just aren't able to really use it. But it seems like you have tremendous recall and application of the frameworks that you're using. So how how did you build that for yourself? That's that's a phenomenal question. I mean, I, I think there's I forget who said a famous quote that, you know, there are many models and all of them are flawed, right? And, and so I think the first thing to understand is that there is no perfect framework, uh, one size fits all, right? It's and again the key thing is then to be able to find what works and what's useful and plays to your strengths and allows you to develop your areas of improvement and then just really double down on that. For me, as a practitioner, uh, I really got introduced to, you know, I came in later in life into sports psychology as like midway through my military career. And so I had a lot of practical experience um, in and out of combat and in at sports playing football at army. And so to me, I had, I kicked around a lot of things too, but I didn't have the breadth and depth. I didn't, you know, I didn't have the science, right? So I knew the art of how this stuff applied, 
specifically specifically for developing tactical athletes, but I didn't really know the science, right? And so, you know, the odyssey of the last 10 years has really been continuing to explore as a practitioner on what works. And, and then at the same time, really digging deep into the science in terms of things that are evidence-based best practices that are research-based. And uh, and so I, what, I, what I've settled on in terms of sports psychology is I, I, I don't think there's one good model. I don't think, just look at the assessment tools. I mean, there's so many different, assessment tools that we can use to assess and select players through the draft different professional sports uh, personality tests i mean it's really really confusing right i think what i've settled on the one the one model that i really use in my personal practice um, we don't use necessarily in the reds simple is best in my opinion there's a lot of beauty in simplicity right and i think what i've found is the best practitioners, the, the guys who are awesome at what they do, guys that I look up to, like Dr. Bernie Holiday, uh, Dr. John Hammermeister, who are just awesome in both the science and the art and are unicorns that way, is that they, they have a, take a very, very simple approach to things, right? And they almost get criticized for that because they're kind of like, oh, this is like kindergarten stuff. But um, the one model that I really like and I can share with the audience is the 4C model of mental toughness. And we talk about mental toughness to define that. As you can tell, I'm a word nerd because we're not using the same language. And we're not, we're not going to have the same perspective in terms of our understanding, let alone application, right? So this one comes from Dr. Jim Lair, uh, Dr. Peter Clow, uh, a Doug Stratargic uh, with AQR International. It, it's really simple. It looks like a pizza pie. It, it's, uh, it has the four C's of mental toughness and I had a fifth C. And those four C's uh, you know, are control, commitment, challenge confidence and then the fifth one that i add in there is is character right but mental toughness is an ability and willingness to be able to uh use a specific set of cognitive and emotional skills to execute tasks at the upper range of your potential consistently right regardless of the circumstances and the outcomes right and so and, and in other words it's uh the ability and willingness to be at your best when it matters the most more often uh, that's that's mental toughness as it's defined and I think those those five C's allow you to to be able to develop your inner strength based on an outer orientation to your you know where where your performance environment is. Um, it leverages things like resilience and positivity to to then increase the likelihood you're going to have more positive outcomes. But the other part that I like about it, and this is kind of the, the problem with sports psychology sometimes when you look at the literature, is that it really focuses on individuals. But I, I think that this model also applies to teams, which. From my standpoint, I really tend to focus in on on leaders and uh, optimizing leader performance, specifically coaches uh, through the art and science of coaching. So mental toughness, the the four C model, mental toughness. I had the fifth C in there. That's that's the way to go, in my opinion. And how do you advise somebody to use that? Is it something that they write down and stick on their mirror every day and and go through? Is it something they journal on every day? Like what's the what's the application that makes that habit? and makes it actionable. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the the big thing is to just to kind of understand, you know, so you, you look at the model, right. And it's, it's a pizza pie, right. It's pretty simple. Right. I mean, the first thing you have to do is you got to understand what is this all about? Right. And, and so what I like about it is that it breaks this idea of mental toughness down and the art and science of it into bite-sized chunks. That's easy to remember. Right. And it's, Three to five things are really easy to remember, and that's how the brain works, right? So that's why keeping it simple allows you to be able to remember it. If you can remember it and understand it, then you're more likely to apply it, theoretically. And so for me, if I can take, and again, there's some great assessment tools that are associated with this that are evidence-based, that you can take 
go online. They don't cost a lot of money. For example, the mental toughness questionnaire. And by taking that questionnaire, you, you automatically get uh, a level of self-awareness that you may not have understood. And it gives you some recommended ways to then be able to put this into action and, and maybe gives you and prioritize which of these C's are the most important things. So let's take confidence, right? And so if I understand, you know, and I deal with this a lot with baseball players, especially when they're, when they're struggling, confidence is just a huge issue, right? I think guys have imposter syndrome. And so guys put a lot of pressure on themselves. Guys attribute confidence to just having success or a specific task. Guys don't necessarily link their, uh, their confidence to their values and belief system. And so if I can just start there and I can start to peel back the onion as far as like, hey, what is confidence in my abilities versus interpersonal confidence, how that relates to like trust and values, then I can start to really take something that seems really, you know, intangible and break it down into tangible things that I could put into action. But I also think that most it's really important to have coaching, right? Because you can read a million and one self-help books out there and believe me, I, I've done it. And there's, you know, again, it gets really confusing, but I, but just like anything, like you, if you, you've never been to a gym and you show up and you can screw around and maybe make some progress, but if you had a personal trainer, someone who's a, a, an, an expert and they are able to guide you in the process, you're going to make the likelihood you're going to make the gains and you want to make or the losses that you want to make and you're going to make progress towards your goals is, you know, is going to increase two to five X, right? It's the same thing with mental coaching, I think. And, and that's why it's such a huge proponent of coaching uh, and the art and science of coaching, because we all need it, right? You know, some people think we all need a therapist. I, I think we all need a coach and that comes in different forms and fashions. So that's, I would highly recommend taking an assessment tool, taking some time to deep dive into it and get a coach. And what's the difference between a coach and a therapist in your mind? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the first one, I mean, it just is licensure, right? You know, so a therapist is someone who's licensed to identify uh, and treat and develop a treatment plan for a specific psychopathology, right? So that may be an anxiety disorder, maybe it's post-traumatic stress, maybe whatever it is too. So they're specifically dealing with injury and illness. A, a coach really, you know, is, is dealing with the, the prevention and the performance side of things psychologically, right? A therapist can be a coach, but necessarily they're they bailiwick, right? A coach has the ability to both teach, train, uh, and mentor, right? You know, really good ones do that as well, too. And so for me, a mental performance coach fits a role that can complement what a therapist can do, right? But they're not taking the place of that. Okay. I'm just, I always find that interesting because so much of coaching work seems to really get into the psyche and a lot of therapy work. So there's like some overlap there. I'm just always curious how people think of those differences. All coaches are, are really psychologists when you think about it too. They're not necessarily therapists, right? but they deal with the human condition. And so there's naturally going to be uh, when they're dealing with the human condition, they're, they're dealing with behaviors, right? And so for me, it's why I focus so much time within the reds. There's, there's only two of us, Dr. Tyler Klein and myself, we're trying to, to, span an organization that you know is spread out all over the united states and the dominican republic and we can't be everywhere at once and so how do you really focus your attention and, and efforts and for me that the force multipliers are the actual athletic coaches because they're the ones who are the gatekeepers with the athletes and they're the ones who are reinforcing the concepts when we're gone so if i'm in chattanooga like i'm in right now with our double a team you know if i can really invest heavily into the coaches to reinforce the concepts and to be the first line of offense and defense psychologically, then that's going to make my job a lot easier, but it's also to increase the, the, the likelihood that the players are going to get the benefit that they need. 
and it just makes the coaches better themselves. It makes them more effective. Yeah. I want to dive into confidence a little bit more. You, you said very quickly linking, they haven't linked their confidence to their inner values or so, something like that. What, what is that? And, and how do you build, I guess, resilient confidence? Mm. Yeah, they're, they're closely related, especially when you look at the research or where it comes from, especially cognitive behavioral therapy. And we think about Ellis and we, we think about, you know, Seligman and some of the early folks in the 1960s who developed about this idea about learned optimism. So confidence is an inner belief in yourself, right? And so, but it's also closely linked to your belief system. And I think that when I look at the, the research on character, for example, it, it focuses on a couple of different things. And, and character and confidence are closely related. That's why those C's are interrelated and they're interdependent to each other, right? They can't, you can take them independently, but they're better when they are linked together. This is a great example. So we think about character, you know, as a combination of our values, which is a set of standards or principles that we live by, which affect in our beliefs in terms of how we see ourselves in the world around us or what our worldview is. That ultimately, and then also our purpose or why, those are fundamentally, you know, the base of a pyramid. And so when I have, when I can identify and understand those, that increases the likelihood that things like confidence, a belief in myself is now underpinned and anchored by my values. Right. So for me, like my three values are, you know, love, competition, and service. And you see that, and I haven't always understood what those are. Right. And so, but when I started to explore those later in my life as a leader, they really drove my my attitudes and my behaviors in terms of how I, you know, what I did on a daily basis and how I measured my success when sometimes it's hard to measure my success or my effectiveness. Ultimately, I can ask myself at the end of the day, did I live my values, right? And the purpose then becomes your North Star. So to me, there it's a foundational concept you have to understand. And then the confidence then, no matter what happens, what I say to myself, my self-talk, what my affirmations are, which reinforce what I believe in myself, how I see the situation within that. If that is rock solid, no matter what happens in terms of the outcome, the likelihood that I'm going to be confident, continue to build confidence is more likely, right? And, and that's not a Pollyannish, like, hey, I got my head in the sand and, you know, it's all smiles and rainbows. No, it's, it's accepting the reality of what, what happened, right? So again, let's go talk about that pitcher who got shelled in his first two, two innings or the, the player who's in a so-called slump who hasn't got a hit in, you know, two series in a row. And, you know, inevitably, how do I see what's happening to me? And then how do I react or respond to that? And then how does that affect my confidence? And I think if you are constantly building your confidence, you know, understanding that character piece that I talked about and what you say to yourself, the narrative that goes along with that too, you're always going to build confidence regardless of what the outcome is. Um, so it's, it's a process and an outcome-based approach. Do you journal? I do. Not as much as I, I, uh, I should. I, your audience can't see this too, but I, I'm a big bullet journal fan. Okay, yeah. To me, it's really kind of keeping track of what I want to do, today, what my intentions are for the day. Um, what do I want to accomplish? Like, what's my schedule? What's my task? How do I prioritize that? I'm a big fan of the Eisenhower box, um, which you can Google <laughs> get another model. My, uh, so I, I have an editor for this. Uh, shout out to Johnny. And he pulls all the links for the show notes uh, for everything that's referenced. And he is going to have a, his hands uh, full with this conversation today. So Johnny, I apologize, man. I'm working. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I like the, and I like the bullet journal too, because then I can actually then, you know, I'm a, I, I'm, I was an artist, little known fact. I almost went to art school before I went to West Point, which is a total, another divergent thing too, but that's so conceptual how I draw things out. I, I doodle. Um, and that helps me uh, not only reflect, but be more creative as well too. But when I'm on a really good schedule, uh, as far as journaling, I'm just reflecting on, Hey, did I live my values? You know, I'm writing out, you know, love, you know, competition and service. And how did I, you know, what were my attitudes and behaviors that reflected those values throughout the day? And then what, what, what did that lead towards, you know, me making a difference in these players and coaches life and organizationally. Right. And I think that's, that's what I tend to do when I'm, when I'm doing it well, but like a lot of people, I mean, I, I, I fall off the wagon and do I have some days and weeks that are better than others? Absolutely. Right. And I think that's important is just to be easy on yourself. Right. Because sometimes we think, Hey, if I'm not disciplined and I'm not doing it every single day, or there's a, just some disruption going on then I'm all of a sudden I'm a failure again, going back to that too. And that's not the case at all too, but just, are you doing it more often than you're not that, you know, that's just important. And you're doing what works for you. I think doing what works for you is, is, is really, really important for some people like meditating, you know, sitting down in the lotus position and doing some sort of mantra doesn't work for them, right? But I think a walking meditation or mindfulness exercise works for them way better, but you get the same benefits. So you just got to, you got to experiment, find what works for you and then, you know, and then iterate. Yeah, it was interesting. I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day and he, somebody had said to him that the goal is mindfulness and meditation is a tool. The, the goal isn't meditation. The goal is mindfulness. And so he was saying that too. Like he can't just sit down and meditate. He uses yoga and walking as his meditative practice and, and his, or his mindfulness practice. And it really has helped him tremendously. So I, I think that's just a good, that's a good call out there too. The way we're looking at it. those two things are mutually exclusive. They're, they're interrelated, you know, but, uh, you're exactly right. Yeah, they're you not know, the right? same. Often people think of them as the same, but they're not. Exactly. Exactly. So thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Something you said triggered a question that I wanted to make sure we got in because you talk about like, well, maybe it's not for you. Do what works for you. And then there's the other argument, which is like, if you're not getting the results that you want, what's wor- what you think is working for you is not working for you. And so you, you always have to be, you know, pushing yourself and trying new things, getting out of your comfort zone. And one of the, there's a, you know, one of the cliches out there in this world is get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I, I don't like it. I think it leads to the impression that you get comfortable at some point. And I think the whole point is that you're never comfortable. I think it's, I think it's just, should just be get used to being uncomfortable. That's a, that's a great way. Uh, great. And it's funny. It, you don't like that saying you, you're really not going to like the book that I help write deliberate discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> I like the concept. I like the concept. I just think that it's, there's that point of like, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And what I have found in my own life, and I'm curious your thoughts on this is that I sort of expect like that next uncomfortable thing is going to somehow be more comfortable. And it never is. It's always hard. And to me, I'm like, okay, but that's, that's kind of the point. So I just curious what your take on the, the getting comfortable being uncomfortable is and what, and what, what does that mean to you? It is a cliche thing too. And it's, it's funny if we were in my office right now, I'd have this uh, mission six zero company that my buddy started that I, we helped write the book about and uh, recommend that your listeners go, go check it out. 
the re- you know, it says get comfortable being uncomfortable, which speaks <laughs> to the process, but sorry. Uh, no, 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 you're, you're not, I'm not, I don't get offended by that too. Cause I'm going to, we'll break this apart. We, I like deliberate discomfort, right? Because it speaks to like, I'm intentionally getting uncomfortable by trying new things, by being willing to make mistakes, by willing to take risks that, you know, may lead to acceptable failure or, and then there's sometimes where I'm just going to flat out have catastrophic failure. And, and we've all, we've all been there. If you live enough life, you're, you're going to experience that success and failure cycle, right. You know, to where hopefully you're learning in the process. But I think the research and the best practices show, you know, especially from the special operations side and, and elite populations period, both individually and collectively is that, you know, when you're willing to do things that are hard, that serve a purpose, you know, and that may suck. You're not sucking for suck's sake. That that's the part that I I, I I hate. Right? It's like you know, hey, the part that I don't like, the part is the embrace the suck. I and oh, and that's like this. It's a very military military thing, and that's where that comes from. So you're gonna see embrace the suck out there. Don't buy the hype, folks. You know, because sucking for suck's sake is called acute and chronic injury and illness. And that's not good. for you. That It's not, it's not good for you at anything, any aspect of, of the human dimension, mentally, emotionally, physically, like I'm going to go mentally suck for no purpose. No. I mean, but if I'm willing to go suck for a purpose that leads, it's a means to an end. I'm thinking about going to get my PhD and I know it's going to suck, right? It's going to be a seven year odyssey and you know, I got to work while I'm doing it. And, but like, Am I willing to go through that crucible of academia uh, in order to be able to then do more of the work that serves my purpose to help more people? Then hell yeah, I'm going to go do that. It's it's worth it, right? And that's a calculus that we sometimes uh, need to make. And then I think when what, what's great about that is that when you when you are willing to make that leap, sometimes um, to do something that's uncomfortable, and then you you see the you see the benefits of that. It, it, it becomes, there's a flywheel effect that ends up happening. And, and it, but we also need to talk about the, the doom loop or the, this, the cycle, that same cycle that can happen to where, you know, some people are just addicted to just doing hard things and at the detriment of themselves mentally, emotionally, and socially. And that's not good either. And we don't, we don't talk enough about the, the shadow side of deliberate discomfort a lot, but it, it, it is, it can be addictive in a, in a both positive and negative way. And we got to understand the difference. Yeah. I work with a, a coach who talks about, you know, whether you're doing things out of labor or whether you're doing things out of love and about how you can sustain it if you're doing it out of love, but it, it burns, it burns pretty hot, but it burns pretty quick if you're doing it out of fear or anger or, you know, some negative emotion. You're right. And, and I think it, we're, we're seeing some of the byproducts of that too. With where this interesting time where we're at in in the workplace, as people were trying to start to merge in the country, starting to open up um, across the country, and I'm, I'm seeing that, and people are experienced something good, bad, or indifferent with when they were working remotely or whatnot, or maybe they were unemployed or when they went through a difficult hardship. And this next six months is going to be really important for the collective mental health of our country, right? In terms of how you just see this period that we went through the last eighteen months, right? And we never ever want to, you know, have to lose a loved one and have, you know, thousands and people in our country and millions of people die across the country. But this is something that you know, happened a hundred years ago. You know, it'd be interesting. And I haven't taken enough time to look at how do we benefit uh, socially, you know, as a country as a result of going through this situation. And what could what do we do then in our historical record that we can learn from 
to apply this today within understanding the context and the nuance is different. And I think that uh, it's, I think if we're doing it right, this discomfort that we went through can really be of our benefit moving forward as we go, we enter the workplace, we start to appreciate our teammates better. And for me, it was like coming back from a deployment. Like I never appreciated the American way of life, my family, the things that I, you know, the freedoms that I went through until, you know, that was almost taken away. You know, but I, I also noticed that as a human being that I became desensitized to that the longer that I was home, you know. And so if I could somehow bottle up and hold on to those sentiments of, as far as how things were hard and how that made me harder, to me, that was the things that made me better. And for me, that was called post-traumatic growth. And there's a lot of research out there on that, too. You know, but I, I think we're doing it right. And we, again, trauma is a real thing, you know. But if we didn't experience trauma, how can we make this a po- a post-traumatic growth experience? I. I love that. And I, I was thinking at the beginning of the pandemic, I was thinking the something very similar. I said to a lot of people, you know, I hope that this is the hard thing that we all need that's going to, you know, it's going to stress us all out and it's going to be very difficult and there will be some loss and, and it's going to be very hard. But I do hope that collectively it strengthens all of us coming out the back end. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, uh, and I'm already seeing a lot of the benefit in the arenas that I, I work in, I, I just see a lot of the the progress that we've made because we were forced to get online and how much we value our relationships when we actually get a chance to get together. And for me, it's, you know, being able to do the work and being around baseball, seeing people in the stands. And um, I, I just think we, if, the longer we can hold on to those sentiments, the better we're going to be. Yeah. I know we're coming up on time. I got just one or two more questions for you here. One to do have one last question on the discomfort piece because discomfort brings with it a lot of fear. I mean, I know that I've even felt that like, if there's something that I'm going to do, like if there's a workout that I'm going to do, and I've done a lot of very hard workouts, but I still like, I, I did Murph last weekend, which is the Memorial day workout, which is, you know, pretty grueling experience. And I was doing it for the first time with a weight vest on. Like, I know that I'm going to get it done. I know that it's not going to injure me in any way. And yet there's still like that fear that like that, like instinctual fear right before you start that sort of is trying to convince you not to start. What advice do you have or what words do you have for people when they're in that moment, when they're thinking about doing that thing and they're, they're like right on the precipice between getting started or shutting it down? What advice do you have for how to overcome that voice? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question too. Uh, I was actually just reading an article talking about like the negativity bias, which is a real important thing too. And I think what people don't understand is that, Hey, we, and what's uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes talks about is we have the inner, these two, you know, you look at the angel and the demon, you know, those old bug bug cartoons about the angel and the devil that kind of are sitting on our shoulders. Right. So in terms of our self-talk, like we have our, in our, we are, from an evolutionary perspective built in to have these two voices and perspectives in our, in our head and our, right. And one is the, you know, Stephen A's calls the inner dictator. Right. And then one is the inner liberator. Right. And so, and then I call this unconventional warfare of the mind. Right. And so they, they exist. Those two that seem diametrically opposed exist for a reason. Right. It's almost like having like the Lakers would not be, the franchise there without the Celtics, you know, I mean, it's like bird versus, you know, magic, right. They, they would not exist without each other. Right. 
And so you need to have, you know, the hero and the villain, right? But from an evolutionary perspective, the, the dictator who is, you know, the, the critical analytical judgmental side of you too, which feeds the negativity bias that we all have, that exists for a reason. That's the reason why we survived as a species. I mean, think about it. You know, I mean, and we were, you know, keeps on the you away from predators. <laughs> I have, absolutely right, because it helps us assess. It's the logic. It, it taps into the logical part of our brain using our prefrontal cortex, which is how we evolved and became, you know, as a species, even compared to other human beings. Be, you know, ended up surviving. Right, is because we were able to do the calculus of risk versus reward. Right. So we were able to take a look at the process versus the outcomes, right? You know, am I by myself hunting this this woolly mammoth, or is it easier for me to be able to go be a hunter gatherer? There's less less risk associated with that too, to to be able to get sustenance, you know. But I need to get protein eventually, so it's much easier for me to go hunting in a group with tools and other things that I can, you know, fashion for that too, because I knew that my fellow Neanderthal cousin who went out by himself and tried to take on a woolly mammoth got killed. Okay, so. My, you know, inner dictator is going to tell me it has evolved as a species to then protect us, right? Now, if that's the loudest voice that, you know, is in your head, that's going to control the narrative and the story that you tell yourself. And what you tell yourself is ultimately who you are and what you become and how you perform, right? So I think we also need to be able to feed the inner liberator, right? Which is more associated with, I talked about that trusting mindset, right? Which is more optimistic, you know, it's more supporting, it's more self-compassionate, it's where we get our emotional intelligence, from as well too, to where, you know, I'm letting that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm allowing the dictator to to have his voice. And some, there is some research that says negative self-talk right before a big performance, or like, like for example, a pitching outing, or, you know, I'm about to go do a TED talk, or I'm about to go do a big sales pitch to, you know, that negative self-talk that you said right before yourself, right before your performance can really help you, can really accelerate your performance, really? right? Absolutely. How does that you know? work? Yeah. Well, again, some people think that there's an aspect of humility that comes into because you, you know it's the idea. Hey, you know, am I, I going to get too high, or I'm not assessing the risks, or I'm not able to make adjustments in real time? What we think, you know, and I think this needs to be explored more is that I think what it does is it allows for 10% variance to be able to make adjustments in real time, knowing that your plan they prepare for isn't going to be executed perfectly. So I think it allows you to be the the little bit of negative self talk feeds into the adjustments and pivots that you can make in real time. That That's my theory. And I think it needs to be explored a little bit more. Interesting. It's like Mike Tyson's line. Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. It's like, it just like allows you to get hit in the face and adapt is what you're saying. Kind of. But again, you know, it's like, as, as Eisenhower said, you know, it's about, it's not about the plan. It's about the, the planning process, right? Because the, it would say in the military that the plan doesn't survive first contact. Right. So I think, you know, from a evolutionary standpoint, we need to be able to identify and accept some negative self-talk that's, you know, uh, that, that can actually help us. But again, it's a matter of how you see it. So people understand that, you know, it's just like they look at their nerves, like right before a game, I was just talking to a reliever, uh, I'm sorry, a, a starting pitcher about this too. And he talks about controlling his nerves. So he's, and he was under the impression that I have to, you know, that nerves are bad. Nerves aren't bad, right? That's your brain's way of getting your body ready to go do something really, really important. It's your interpretation of what the nerves are telling you physiologically and then using that to your advantage. That That is what, you know, that's how you're evolved and how you're designed to perform. So if you understand that, you know, you can identify that. You can use it to your advantage instead of fighting it. Yeah. Interesting. I, I would not have thought of that. Andy, selfishly, I could continue this all day long. <laughs> uh, this is fantastic. 
And uh, while you've given Johnny some work to go try to collect all the different frameworks and books and and uh, tools that you've mentioned, I am excited to go back through it all and and really make some time with this episode and, and give it some thought because there is a ton in here. I've been taking a bunch of notes. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your wisdom. This has been fantastic. Yeah, thanks, O'Brien. I really appreciate it. And a shout out to our, our brother, Scott Morley, who's out there. I'm sure he's listening to this. Thanks for connecting us. And uh, to all the audience who's out there, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can uh, find me on Twitter and Instagram. I come through the strongest on probably LinkedIn and, and Instagram. Uh, I have a, a blog post I hit on um, a little bit of, on Medium as well, too. Uh, but please reach out to me. I, I want to be a relevant and responsive re- resource. Um, I find that uh, you know putting my information out there is okay because a lot of people don't reach out to you for whatever reason. But please reach out to me. I, I want to hear uh, how you're doing in the arena and what's working, what's not working for you, and how we can uh, all get better together. I love it. And I, you said you know how you're doing in the arena, and I even saw that on the signature of your email. And you and I had talked about this in our prep call about the the man in the arena speech and just you know how relevant that is for a a sort of a life philosophy. And I, I love that. I actually have that uh, printed. A friend of mine got it for me and I have it hanging in my office. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt is one of my my personal heroes, minus the whole political thing. I, you know, that's where we diverge. But I, I just find his his philosophy approach to things was is really inspirational, you know. And uh, to me, it's just all about uh, not only being in the arena, but helping people in the arena. And and when you're able to make that choice, the likelihood that you're going to get better and make other people better at what they do is... Uh, increases. And so see y'all in the arena. See you all in the arena. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.